podcast has bad words. <laughs> Hello, patrons. Here we are. What's up, y'all? Uh, we're here with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. She is the author of Bearing the Unbearable. She's also a research scientist at Arizona State University and a professor there as well. And we're talking about trauma today we're talking about traumatic stress we're also talking about compassion and love <laughs> and and uh, we have a lot of questions to answer but before we do that we do this little segment Joanne it's called more about less where we we use an article as sort of a a jump off topic uh, for discussion for us and I found this article from spacious therapy that I thought was interesting it's called the negative coping to stress trauma and PTSD because quite often we, we cope with stress, we cope with trauma, but we cope the wrong ways. Mm. And so uh, I thought there were a few things in here that really stood out to me. I'm not going to read the whole article, even though we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But what are some ne- what are some examples of negative coping to stress, trauma, and PTSD? And you let me know if you agree with some of these points or disagree. We they're, they're great talking points for us here. Obviously, the first one here is substance abuse, abuse, and dependence. Mm. So... Um, Someone who has PTSD or has experienced stress or, or, or trauma, um, they often turn to, to substances, yeah. right? Yeah. Why is that? That's almost like the first thing that yeah. we often do, right? Well, not, n- not only do they turn sometimes to substances, but then society blames them for turning to substances. Mm. When society is in part responsible for that, and I know a lot of people can't, tolerate hearing that but that's the reality when we're telling people don't feel your pain but we're not giving them a system within which their pain can be held with compassion and tenderness right then what else are they supposed to do when they don't know how to be with their pain? Mm. Yeah. Right? It's, it's become uncool to feel pain. In well, many it's ways, in, right? it's insidious. The happiness cult, you know, yeah. the pursuit of happiness. It's ensconced in our nation's documents, founding yeah. documents. Right? Wow. The pursuit of happiness. And so, um, yes, people can check out. Um, I tend to, I, of course, I use post traumatic stress because I always drop the D disorder mm-hmm. because I feel like it's a normal response to an abnormal event or tragedy. And so when we have post-traumatic stress, if we don't have a compassionate place where we feel safe to talk about and to narrate our experience, uh, then yeah, I think that unfortunately, some people are gonna have to numb out and we numb out Mm. in any way that we can. There are healthier ways to numb out. Mm. Um, So in our culture, for example, a lot of people use spiritual practice as, uh, as a drug. Mm. Uh, to move away from their pain. And what I say is true spiritual practice should take you right into the center of it mm. rather than moving away from it. Right. Right. And being able to confront it through the spiritual practice. Yeah, absolutely. It should be a means through which we can say, okay, I'm going to strengthen my capacity to bear this. Right. Um, so, so it can be, you know, we, we tend to look at them as unhealthy ways and healthy ways. Um, People ask me, I'm in a contemporary ascetic, so I don't, I don't inebriate in any way. And so people ask, well, are you against a glass of wine? And I say, no, I, if you want to have a glass of wine, have a glass of wine, but have an honest glass of wine. Mm. Have a glass of wine because you enjoy a glass of wine with a meal, not because you miss your mom mm. and you're unconsciously trying to self-medicate. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I think the, the substance abuse, it's a very, it's an easy way. To, to numb. And I think that, you know, our brains love 
to take the easiest way from point A to point B. And unfortunately, substances is, is one of those easy ways. Yeah, and it feels like a shortcut. And you know what? Yeah. It is a shortcut yeah. in the moment. Uh, but as Seth Godin says, there are no shortcuts. There are only direct paths. It's a direct path to the numbing, but it's also a direct path to greater pain oh, longer term. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is important. This piece is important. I'm so glad you said that. Here's what's important about that is that we, we might bypass it Okay, but it's still there. Mm. And then it becomes unconscious. And then we pass that on to our offspring and to their offspring. The intergenerational transmission of trauma is a real thing. It is a real thing. We see it. It's written about in Holocaust literature. It's written about in the native, uh, native genocide literature. It, mm. it, it's a thing. And we have got to stop it because this is why we make war. Mm. Mm. Expand on that. Uh, well, war in here, right. war genetically makes war. Uh -huh. you, it's pretty hard to cultivate a world of compassion when we're all f fighting our own emotional experiences mm. all the time. The internal conflict leads to external out Absolutely. conflict. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I believe that people who have fully inhabited their pain and their trauma and their grief are the, peace, are the potential peacekeepers of the world. I think that they are the ones who can bring peace. If we can start helping people stay with their full emotions, not have to check out, not have to numb out, mm -hmm. not have to pretend it didn't happen, if we can do that, I think that we have a chance. I think if we don't, we don't have a chance because yeah. we'll keep perpetuating the violence against the earth and against animals and against each other. And so there are other ways that, that people try to cope with stress or trauma and the next one here in this article is avoiding others that that's certainly one I isolation right mm -hmm. and we, we isolate ourselves it also mentions panic attacks and then agoraphobia agoraphobia is extreme isolation in a way where you are you become afraid to leave your house or maybe even a room in your house mm -hmm. Uh, when yeah. it gets pretty extreme and i'm sure you have uh you you've talked to people who have experienced this oh for many 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 years <laughs> can, can we talk about it why yeah. this manifests uh, well why it manifests is because the world is inhospitable uh, mm -hmm. if you're hurting if you're suffering hmm. the world is a hostile place yeah. And this yeah. is why most people I work with socially withdraw because they're tired of people. You know, I work with a, a, a mother two weeks ago who lost two children when uh, her son was three. He drowned and he had an older brother who then got into substances when he was uh, preteen, probably because of what happened in the family system. Because yeah. that's that that your house becomes a house of pain mm. and um, got into to substances and ended up overdosing. So now she's lost two children, right? And um, the reality is that that experience um, terrifies other people. And so when she's at work, like her employer, she had pictures of her two boys on her desk and her employer came to her and said, some people in the office aren't comfortable with your children's pictures. Would you please take them down? I'm sorry, excuse me, what? what? Yeah, wow. no, no, it's an inhospitable world if you're hurting. If you're grieving, it's it is a cruel, not non-compassionate world, and so people socially withdraw, and then they're blamed for socially withdrawing. Or if you or if you've had a baby die, people actually say to people whose babies died, "Well, at least it wasn't your nine-year-old who died." Are you kidding me? Wow! Wow! It's so, <laughs> you know Kobe Bryant and his daughter just died recently in in a helicopter crash, and 
I, I couldn't believe I saw someone tweet something about the wife. Like, she has plenty of money. She'll be fine. Wow. And it's like, oh, you don't understand grief or pain. If you can can think that any amount of money is going to erase a trauma, then you don't understand trauma. You, and maybe you haven't experienced it yourself. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, there's no exemption. I right. mean, this could happen to anyone. This mm. crosses socioeconomic classes. It crosses ethnicity, religions. It can happen to anyone. Um, and and the world so grossly misunderstands. And then, of course, when this is a public tragedy, it, I get I get really offended because uh, for the people who are suffering, because everyone feels entitled to comment. Just shut up. Right. You have no mm. right to comment about this. Yes. Who are you anyway? Totally agree. Um, it's it's completely and utterly inappropriate. Um, so, I mean, it's just, a, it really is an inhospitable world for everyone, for people who are suffering, generally speaking. So when you see an article like that that says people are coping that way, they're coping that way because primarily, at least in my 25 years experience of doing this, and only this kind of work, in practice and in research, uh, I would say that most often what I see is that people with, withdraw, socially withdraw, mm -hmm. because the world is a very cruel and psychologically violent place if you're hurting. Mm. And also that manifests in panic attacks it mentions here. So that, that could be the other side of it is if you do choose to not be the agoraphobe or you, you've you just gotten out of the house, it can then result in, in these sort of repeated panic attacks. Yeah, so I like to... Uh, um, dig deep with words. So what I say with someone who comes in and sits down and says, I, I keep trying to go out and I keep trying to face the world and I have panic attacks. I say, without using the word panic attack, can you tell me what you feel? Oh. Right? Because that tells me very little about their experience. And I, and, and really the magic is in pr precision and nuance. Mm. So my heart starts beating really hard. I start sweating. Uh, I can't see anything in my peripheral vision. I, I start shaking, right? And they're starting to describe, okay, now close your eyes and can you feel that? And I, you know, I'm not afraid of this. I'll take people right into the center of it. Mm. I'll, great, let's go. And so we go right into the center of it. And, and in that way, then you start to uncover, excavate, psychological excavation. You start to get underneath the fear, because that's all a, all a quote panic attack is, mm -hmm. is some kind of fear, rational or irrational. It's a fear. And you've lost safety in, in a way. And that's why you're you've experiencing lost safety. that fear. Absolutely. Oh, well, absolutely. There in, I mean, anytime we feel safe, we don't feel fear. And anytime we feel fear, we don't feel safe. Mm. They're mutually exclusive ideas. Absolutely. Right? Conceptually, too. So, so what I try to do is help people get underneath what's happening there. Right? And so then you start hearing the stories of, you know, well, oh, I just, well, I had driven past the hospital where my son died. And then they start to understand their own emotional experience. Or I had just walked past a colleague in, in the hallway who said something really inappropriate after her daughter was murdered. Mm. Right. And then you get to the work. Right. Right. Because right. if you stop at, oh, I, I just had these panic attacks and that's how I'm coping. <laughs> mm. That is really insufficient. Right. right? right. Wow. I, I gotta, it's funny you say, you know, they, they passed the hospital with their son. Died. I actually have a family member who's experiencing some trauma and I was just speaking to them about, well, I really wasn't speaking to them. I was just listening. But one of the things that kept coming up was, uh, you know, I have to pass this certain place that, that makes me, uh, that cues <laughs> this emotion. Um, I, that specifically, like, so how do you dig in? Like, once you understand what that cue is, 
I guess, how would you help someone dig into that? I'm just asking this for my own. Sure. Well, yeah. it depends on the person, right? Because yeah. everyone is so different. I mean, that, again, that's one of the, the that's one of the problems with our current pedagogical models is we want a checklist. We want a protocol. Therapists mm. want a simple <laughs> check the box check the box check the box and we've moved so far away from you know a wonderful model like existential psychotherapy right yeah. uh, which is nuanced and artistic and psychologically reflexive and so it depends on the person but oftentimes when someone is being cued they're having trouble driving past a hospital then it's then it's like let's talk about what happened in the hospital let's go right mm. into it let's remember it yeah. and let's see if we can take some of the sharp edges off and sometimes that means and I have done this with clients let's drive let's go together let's yeah. talk talk through it as it's happening wow right yeah. Yeah. and take them right to it because they feel safe with me yeah they love me i love them and so what better place to do this work yeah yeah, yeah. no I, I, that totally makes sense i mean everyone has their own thing that they need to work through um i was just hoping to get you know something that i could go to my family member with but there is some th- there is some work that they need to do uh, a little bit deeper and I guess I was looking for a way to help them get deeper but I'm not a professional um, I, yeah. I I mean I'm not to plug it but have them start with the book really yeah. I mean it's oh. 10 bucks on Amazon it's oh, cheap okay. and, and, yeah. That's a great and no. I mean it's a great <laughs> self therapy and please book. do plug your book you well. know <laughs> on our very first tour it was our second stop we were in or maybe it was our third stop it was Orlando Florida and um, I was taught, someone asked a question. I'm like, well, we actually cover this in our book. And I was like, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to like sell our book. I just really want to advise. And the guy was like, dude, do you believe in what you have written about? And I'm like, yeah, I totally believe in what we've written about. He's like, then sell your book, man. <laughs> so, okay. th- th- yeah, there there's no go. shame in plugging your book. <laughs> okay. well, here, here's the uh, next way that people often cope with stress, trauma, or uh, PTS is... Uh, staying always on guard or hyper vigilant after going through a trauma it may seem reasonable to try to stay extra alert you may be on the lookout for danger at all times this is called hyper vigilance however this way of coping doesn't work you end up feeling stressed fearful and fatigued the brain is in a hyper alert state fight flight or freeze Mm -hmm. good news the brain can be re-hardwired to to calm down and uh, to calm down and to stay and play mode. So uh, let's uh, we're talking about rewiring the brain here. I, I assume that's through some sort of like uh, neural limbic training. I, I'm not sure exactly what what they're talking about here, but hypervigilance can be a problem, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think uh, I want to tease out first of all. There's an assumption here that all of this is consciously controlled in this article, and that's actually not true. Okay. So hypervigilance can be a reactive state of the nervous system that is far outside of our conscious control, right? right. Mm-hmm. And so what you end up with, with is someone who, you know, someone behind me drops a book and I do this, right? Sure. That's not I didn't consciously control that, right? So when we're doing, when I'm conducting research and I'm using a trauma measure, a traumatic stress measure, generally traumatic stress measures measure experiential avoidance, which is one of the kind of core characteristics of trauma. Uh, Avoidance, what we've been talking about, unconscious Mm -hmm. avoidance. Uh, Intrusive thoughts. So you're just going about your day and all of a sudden an image pops in your head. Mm -hmm. And hypervigilance, hyperarousal is another way to say it. Now, the... (laughs) Very rarely is that actually within your conscious control. So I wouldn't even call it a way that we cope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, the, the way that we react in the long term to trauma. 
And so the ways that we help people deal with that, or at least the way that I do, is by helping people habituate, by taking them into the center of their trauma and pain when they trust me and when they feel safe. And, And as we do that, then their nervous system starts to calm down because they keep re-experiencing it. So they re-experience sort of a pedal to the metal in a safe environment where they feel held, where they feel resonance, where they feel compassion, you know, where I'll sit next to them, where I'll, where I'll, you know, where I'll touch them if it's appropriate, where they can touch me if they, if it's appropriate as a, as sort of a guide into Mm -hmm. this, you know, this abysmal place. And we can re-experience it sometimes over and over and over and over again. Um, Sometimes, some, I mean, this is the big, a big part of the problem is we want it fixed quickly. So not only do we want checklists, but we want it to be fixed next week. Yeah. Right. You Snap know? of a finger. <laughs> That's give me right. the answer. Give That's me right. the pill. Give me yeah. the Fast food therapy, Give me the checklist. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now with uh, everyone's different, obviously. My wife is a person who reacts very easily. If the wind blows too hard on the, our, our patio doors, she you know, jumps. Mm-hmm. And there are other people. We mentioned Kobe Bryant a, a moment ago. One of my favorite videos is of someone like pretending he's getting ready to throw a ball in Kobe's face, and Kobe doesn't flinch at all. Like, he has uh, a different type of maybe vigilance. I don't know what you would call it hypo-vigilance maybe, but, but, um, or had rather. Um, but uh, so they're, they're, it becomes a spectrum uh, for people where they, they react differently. So two people can experience a similar or even the same event but be traumatized by it differently, right? Oh, sure, yeah. The, the flight, fight, freeze thing is real. Okay, it's real. And there's a cascade of events that happen in a flight, fight, freeze response. Um, you know, the, the eye, generally the ocular system detects a threat. Sometimes the auditory system detects a threat. And, you know, there's, there are these things that happen in our brain, including, you know, the HPA access coming online and sending a message through the, through the spine, you know, that there's a threat. And in order to respond to the threat to make us fight harder, run faster, we are going to dump endogenous opioids into the bloodstream, glucocorticoids, norepinephrine, all of these things go pumping through our veins, right? And we are just, oh, we're on. We lose peripheral vision. Our myopic vision gets more keen. Our major muscle groups get more blood circulation, but we can't sign our name worth crap because our fine motor skills go offline, right? right. All of these things happen in 0.006 seconds. Mm. That whole process I mean, 0.006 seconds. I mean, that's profound. You can't consciously control it, right? Now, can we change that over time, though? Can we become the type of person who doesn't react to that stimuli the same way? Well, I mean, it's an, it's our nervous system, right? So can you calm your nervous system? Absolutely. We have plenty of evidence, empirical evidence, from, for example, uh, research on meditation. Mm. Meditation creates some space in the nervous system, mm-hmm. gives us a little bit of emotional equanimity, and so we become a little more stable, right? Mm. Uh, there's probably a range of normal for us as individuals, right? right? Yeah. That comes from genetics, our family system, right? And how we were raised and whether we had trauma in childhood, et cetera. Mm. But like if, if this is my range, this is my sort of I'm super, super, super stimulated and anxious and neurotic over here. And my capacity for calmness is about over here. You know, if I can get somewhere down here, then I'm going to experience a lot less suffering in life, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's it sounds like it, you're. It's not maybe. It's not necessarily changing what happens in those point zero zero six seconds as much as how you're dealing with 
that that reaction yeah yeah and and resilience and bounce back yeah, right yeah. and so you know how some people can go to the gym and they work out and work out and then they have to go sleep because they're just exhausted or they're you know they they don't have that endorphin lift uh-huh. well and some people are like oh yeah you know, mm-hmm. and they're they're out for a run, right? And so everyone is so different. And it's so it's important to understand that our nervous systems, because we're so different, we work with what we have. It's mm-hmm. not realistic because of my childhood, the nature of my childhood. Mm-hmm. I, it's not realistic for me to think that I can be way over here like a Tibetan, you know, transcendental meditator. Mm-hmm. I, that's just not going to be me mm-hmm. because my nervous system didn't organize around that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right? But I can get on this end for right. me, right? Yeah. And be relatively equanimous and non-reactive now some of that goes down the tube when you're facing catastrophic loss so Hmm. um you know so i lost one child in 94 and uh five years ago my oldest son was involved in a head-on collision with a drunk driver and he almost died Hmm. and so all the things i know intellectually i'm a scholar in the field Mm -hmm. (laughs) and all the things i know intellectually out the door when I went into ICU and saw my son hooked. Right. Mm. Right. And and I am reduced to a small child who knows nothing. Mm. Yeah. Mike Tyson said everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and that's sort of what happened to that's you it. there, right? Yeah. And yeah. You, you know these things intellectually uh, and, and you even know them emotionally when you're in that sort of calmer state, right? right? But, but when everything changes and, and the adrenaline and everything else is going, uh, that changes the way that you feel about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, And so another coping mechanism here from this article is avoiding reminders of trauma. Now, we, we did talk about this with a lot of people's stuff. Those become the triggers of memories. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how just because you get rid of the the triggers doesn't mean you actually get rid of the memories. You don't, it doesn't mean you get rid of the trauma, right? And the article here says, trying to avoid bad memories or trying to shut out feelings seems understandable and reasonable. However, they don't work because trauma controls your life if you try to escape from it. And uh, you, you echoed that yeah. a moment ago, but it, how, how, should we, how should we expand on this? Uh, when we try to suppress the trauma, it... It, it just makes it worse. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, and again, I, I don't, I want to, I don't, I want to be really circumspect here, and I don't want to blame victims, right? Mm-hmm. What I want to do is say, get some good support, mm-hmm. you know, really get some good support, and that doesn't have to be a therapist. Mm-hmm. Like I have found, my best therapist is my horse, mm-hmm. my rescue horse. Mm-hmm. I've heard that quite a bit you know, mm. where, where uh, people have I- animals in general. You, uh, we talked off mic about your farm. Maybe we can yeah. talk a little bit about that because sure. you have 30 something animals. 38, 38, 38. Re- all rescued animals. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you've been a vegan since 72, 72. you said? Holy since you, were, you said seven years old, right? Yeah. That is oh, crazy. Oh, you just told people how old oh, I am, Oh, wait, we can, we can, we can, we can <laughs> no, delete that up. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I don't have a problem. Well, this is no, a math just, podcast. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm just, the reason why I even bring that up is because I am just so jealous of how at that age you were be you were able to enlighten yourself like that is just it seems like uh it, it just i'm very envious of that Aww, yeah nice. and and by the way uh you you look very very young and i think that's probably because of the veganism yeah i think it is no yeah. surgery or anything yeah. so yeah. our botox or anything shit like that so yeah. uh you know i uh i i'm physically quite strong i work on the farm myself i throw bales of hay um, you know, I, I'm engaged with nature and, you know, there are women who are a fraction of my age who can't 
do that, who can't work mm. the way that I do. And I do attribute that to my commitment to the planet and to more importantly, the animals who inhabit it. Um, and uh, and I think this happens to be a benefit, that happens to be a perk, yeah. is youthfulness, but I would, I would do it even if it aged me, just yeah. because I can't possibly fathom uh, being responsible for the death or torture of another being. Yeah. And you take it's care. very inspiring. It's Thank very you. Inspiring. And Thank you take you. care of animals too on uh, on your farm. I do. But also working with them is is therapeutic. Can we can we talk yeah. a little bit about that? Well, yeah. So it's the Sella Care Farm, and so in in the Sella Care Farm, I had this vision for I rescued a horse. This was four years ago. I was doing a hike, and um, I had wanted to do this hike my entire life. I saw a picture of a gorgeous waterfall in the Grand Canyon and uh, when I was about 10 on, in National Geographic, and I was like, I want to go there, and I'm really a nature girl, and then I had a bunch of kids and could never get to it. So for my 50th birthday, I was going to do this hike, and I was preparing for it and had my backpack and my water, and we were going to go down and camp, and I get on this, uh, this trail, and I come around the first corner, literally within three minutes and a horse that they were using as a pack animal had fallen down hmm. his head was bleeding and his knees were bleeding and the guy was hitting him in the face trying to get him up and kicking him oh. and I you know I'm the, I'm the crazy animal lady right oh so I'm goodness. like what is happening right now and I started screaming oh. at him stop 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 uh, long story short, I started to cry because oh. I cry quite easily. It makes me want to cry just thinking about that. Oh, wait, do you see his picture? I'll show you his picture. Oh my goodness! Um, and so he, you know, quickly took the other horses and went to the top because I started crying. It was becoming sort of hysterical. Mm. Good for me. And uh, we started taking the packs off this horse. And when we got the packs off, there was a wooden frame that the coolers were on, and the and the, the lawn chairs and the backpacks and all the shit that humans take camping that they don't need to take camping. And if you can't carry it yourself, don't use an animal, <laughs> mm -hmm. especially an abused one. Anyway, so when they took that off of his back, he actually had bone exposed. They had oh. worn down through his hair, through all the layers of his skin and muscle, all the way down to his bone. Oh, my God. And I literally, I'd never seen anything like that. And uh, it's a long story, but it took me three days to rescue him. Mm. And I did. I got him out. No one thought he was going to live. Mm. And by sheer will of love, that gorgeous animal lived. Mm. And then I, I work with a lot of Native clients whose children or parents have died. And so... Um, I would I would be in session with them, and and I had this I, I had this fragile rescued horse in my backyard. Mm -hmm. I, I I'd never had a horse. I didn't know what to. Do. I mean, I'm just like I don't know what to do with this horse, but I'm gonna love him really really good. So I would make him a a mush made of coconut flake, organic coconut flakes, and flaxseed, and you know I just did the whole thing to try to help him slowly but responsibly and responsibly gain weight. So my first native client, it was probably about seven days after, eight days after I rescued him, said, can I go sit with your horse? And I said, yeah. So she went and sit, sat with my horse. I said, do you want me there or not? And she said, no. Mm. And I said, okay. So I let her, gave her some time, brought a bench in there. And she, I could hear her just wailing, sobbing, mm. just sobbing. And I look and Chamaco, my horse, is just standing with his head lowered right next to her mm. while she was just sobbing. And I was like, He's a better therapist than me. Mm. Wow. And I started to see something was happening. And so I started researching like hippotherapy, which actually horse therapy, not hippopotamus therapy. And so, <laughs> <That was> cool. <laughs> so equine therapy, uh, traditionally, you know, you halter a horse and then the horse interacts or you do mounted where you get on a horse. And that's not what was happening. Uh-huh. 
because all my clients wanted to spend time with my horse. And I'm like, something else, something deeper is happening. Mm-hmm. So I found a guy who researched care farming over in the UK. And uh, one of the things he talked about in care farming was that they use care farming for, you know, like in the criminal justice system, instead of going to a what we would call a halfway house, mm-hmm. a transition space for ex-inmates, mm-hmm. um, they will go to work on a care farm. And, but they're working farms. And so these animals that they would bottle feed or fall in love with would then go to slaughter. Mm. Right? Mm. So you, yeah. so you, so you're and, just. And the, and the inmates know about this. Right, right. Uh, and this is heartbreaking, right? Sure. And so I'm like, well, I'm a vegan. I could have a care farm that's vegan and yeah. sustainable yeah. where no one has to say goodbye. Everybody comes and everybody gets compassion and gives compassion. Mm. And I'm like, and I started to see it. So I called this guy, Rich Gorman from the UK at Exeter University. And I said, hey, you don't know me, but can we talk? And he said, sure. And he was super excited about it. Mm. So I brought him over here for two weeks. We planned it, bought 10 acres on the river and started rescuing more animals. And it, and it has been profound. So people who are suffering, who have known loss and grief and loneliness and trauma and fear and angst and despair get to come there and help us take care of the animals who also Mm. have known loneliness and grief and loss and despair and fear because they feel the same emotions we feel. Mm. We know this from J35, Taliqua, the killer whale who carried her dead baby's body around Mm. for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you know, it's really bizarre because everyone in the world was like, oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that, of course it's, she's a grieving mother and yet and yet in our society when a grieving mother keeps pictures of her child out people think that that's weird Mm. i mean it's just we're such a bizarre culture oh yeah (laughs) well well, thank you for helping people speaking of helping people we've got quite a few people to to help here today Uh, we've got some questions from our audience some surprise questions here that we've put together uh teague is uh has a question Ryan, you want to read that? We often deal with trauma and tragedy after it happens, but I'd love to hear an expert discuss how the stoic practice of imagining the worst possible outcomes can help prepare us to deal with tragedy before it happens. This reminds me, uh, my grandfather used to always say this, and I actually do practice this sometimes. It's like if if you're hesitant to do something, Think about the worst possible outcome, and if you can handle that outcome, go ahead and do it. I don't think that works 100% for me, but um, but yeah, I, th- I think that's what my grandpa was uh, saying is very similar to Teek's question here. Well, I think it kind of goes back to something we were talking about earlier in the podcast, and that is mortality salience, right? So mm-hmm. what's the worst pop- possible thing that could happen to anyone? Mm-hmm. Someone oh, yeah. you love dying. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> I think about that all day, every day. Mm-hmm. I really do. I, I start with, you know, the people I love the most. And then move into, you know, my next circle and then my next circle. And of course, my animals are in there, you know, like I'm away from my animals. And I think to myself, I thought to myself this morning, I have a goat I love named Marta. And Marta is like my little sweetheart. And I thought, what if something happens to her? Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, and there's nothing you can you can't control is an illusion. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I I mean, I can control whether or not I step to the right or step to the left. But the big things. If I have a brain aneurysm, I can't control that, right? right? And so I think about it all the time. So worst possible outcome under every circumstance is losing someone we love to death. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And even with the stepping to the right and to the left thing, there are a lot of scientists, like people like Sam Harris, who would say you can't even control that. Yeah, like, yeah. we have no free will, even with respect to, like, can I step left? Like, what made you step left? Mm -hmm. all, all, all of these sort of events collided over the last 13.7 billion years that made you decide to step, step left. Step to the left. Right. Yeah. And, and so uh, I think that I think it's a, it's an important point to to realize that we don't have control, but also looking at the events helps us uh, deal with the tragedy before it happens in a way, if, especially if we know you, you have someone who is dying, like when my mother was dying, for example, like it, it was something that I had to deal with. She, she was dying of, of cancer. Mm -hmm. And, and so yeah, I, it was different from, uh, had she gotten into a car crash, say like there was some time to sort of prepare with it. But even mm -hmm. when it happened, you're still not completely prepared. Yeah. yeah that's a yeah. big loss. Mom is a big loss. Right. Yeah. And watching your mom go through cancer, mm. that's like prolonged trauma. It is. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so does like sitting there and imagining the worst case scenario. So when Josh found out his mother had cancer and she wasn't necessarily terminal when when she first i mean that's not uh, that it wasn't was. it was stage four yeah. okay so so uh, yeah and there, there was some hope there but i guess like immediately thinking about giving up all hope in the worst case scenario does that help with the actual event i think it depends on the person yeah and their yeah, personality characteristics right yeah you know yeah um, and, and hope can mean different things to different people it says hope says something about the future right and, mm -hmm. and so does despair I, I don't think what teague is saying here is should i despair uh but but uh, yeah i i knew pretty much like i i did have hope but it wasn't blind optimism either yeah, sure. it, it was it, my mom has stage four cancer have people gotten rid of that for sure yeah. it had metastasized and, and it made her chances uh, a lot less but uh Hope doesn't also doesn't mean that I think she's going to live forever either. It means okay, how many months does she have left? And and by the way, we all have a certain number of months left, regardless mm. if you know, we're one month old or you know we're a hundred years old. We we have a, a finite time here. It get ba it gets back to what you were talking about earlier. All we have is now. Yeah. And it did help me appreciate that now with her mm -hmm. then. And actually, we, we, did, we did a lot of work repairing our relationship over the course of that next year mm -hmm. as, uh, as she, I spent a lot of time with her. Uh, although, I, I certainly wish I, I would have spent, I would have had more time. Mm. And, there's uh, never enough, is there? No, yeah. no, there's not. But we, we had a lot of nows and a lot of important nows yeah. that, uh, that, that, that were very helpful. So maybe having that thought process of, my mom's probably going to pass away. Mm -hmm. Maybe what that does, instead of helping you deal with like that actual event, it kind of helps you maybe take some actions that, you know, you would, that, that you, regrets. yes, exactly. Yeah. So you can take some actions like you and your mom helped, you know, you guys prepared your relationship a little bit. So certainly that feels better, I would think, than her passing and then not trying to repair that relationship. Yeah. If she were, so I got the phone call from her. It was two days before Christmas, 2008. <clears throat> when she found out um and if i would have gotten a phone call that day it, and it would have been hey your mom just got into a car accident she's no longer here mm. that would have been even more difficult right it would have mm. even been more traumatic although th there sometimes a prolonged sort of death like that can can be more traumatic depending on the individual right it's mm. it they're both traumatic they're just traumatic in different ways right yes right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a question from c-r-e-r how do you break the cycle of narcissist behavior from someone close to you? 
Wow. Yeah. This uh, my pithy answer to this is always: you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. Yeah. Um. If you have someone who is a a narcissist in your life, and and um, they think nothing but uh, uh, but about themselves, they're not serving the greater good or anything like that. You're probably going to be hard pressed to change them. You know, we 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 want to change them quite often. It's just like uh, if you have someone who's an alcoholic in your family. The easiest thing to want to do is go up and shake them and say, why don't you stop? You're going to stop drinking. But of course, that that rarely, if ever, works, right? And the yeah. same is true with narcissism. I want you to stop thinking about yourself all the time. Uh, we're all narcissists to some extent. Um, meaning, we, in fact, before we started recording, we were talking about solipsism and speciesism. And, and we all believe that we're sort of the center of the universe uh, from moment to moment. So... Like, yeah, like that's our default. It's hard for us to like have that feeling and then be like, well, wait a minute, we're not the center. And maybe it's our, I think maybe it's our culture, cultural default. Yeah. Right? I don't know that it's always been the, the part of the human condition. You know, we had uh, Dr. Christopher Ryan on the podcast. He wrote a book called Civilized to Death, which is a phenomenal book. And he talks about how basically ever since civilization, so the last 12,000 years, we've kind of, um, <clears throat> We've regressed in a way. Uh, you know, evolution doesn't mean that we're we're progressing. We we are sometimes regressing. And the subtitle of the book is "The Price of Progress." Mm. And uh, the pri- this is the price that we're paying now. Is there is th- there's more of this. And by the way, we're acculturated to believe that in order to be unique, special, whatever, we also have to be the. Uh, we have to be i'm thinking of like these these cultural figures on instagram or something where it's mm. it's, it's constantly it's it's a, a selfie culture in many ways oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh that just doesn't seem healthy yeah well i mean we promote narcissism it's not just <laughs> right. to not be a narcissist yeah. is a great feat in today's culture right yeah yeah i mean seriously to think of others before ourselves is a great heroic act yeah i totally so, agree and, um, it, and then there are times though when it gets when it gets in the way of everything it gets in the way of our relationship so what do you tell someone who is dealing with a, a narcissist maybe it's their their partner their significant other their spouse yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, again, I'm a researcher, so I need more data. But um, let's say that this is what the, one of the first things I would say is how important is this relationship to you? Mm. How important is it to salvage? That's a great place to start. Right? Yeah. Because if it's not worth the emotional and social investment, mm. then maybe you take a break from, you know, Miss or Mr. Nar- narcissist. You know, right? I, I look at a. I always talk about my mom and dad issues on here because, you know, sometimes I use this as a good therapy session for me. But like with my dad, uh, he is, I would consider he's a bit narcissist. And I, I do value that relationship very much. However, what I would have to do with my own life would be so outside of what I, what my values and what my beliefs are that I would have to live a miserable life in order for him to be open to having a relationship with me. So, uh, yes, a relationship is important, but then, you know, I guess the next step is like, oh, how important, how not, Im- not more important than your relationship with yourself. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, and, and, and then, you know, so for me, it's not like I don't have to work with people who have propensities toward being very self-focused and grief itself, especially acute grief is a very self-focused experience. Any any moral or physical injury is. I mean, if you've just broken your leg, 
you're pretty focused on yourself. Yeah. Because you have to be. Yeah. If your child's just died, or your mother's just died, or your father's just died, or your partner's just died, you have to focus on yourself. There is a time where it is appropriate to self-focus. Yeah. Right? And then there's a time for our hearts to soften and turn outward mm -hmm. and see others. Right. Hence the farm. Hence the farm. Exactly. Well, that's the whole thing. Right. Yeah. That's the whole magic of it. You just gave the secret away, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, the thing is, usually inside every person who's very self-focused is a very wounded person mm -hmm. who has not had his or her needs met. Yeah. Um, I'm not excusing it, but I am explaining it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's interesting, Sean. <laughs> it is. It. Well, you know what? That. That. Uh, what you have said. Um, it's very similar to, I had this realization, I don't know, a year or so ago, working through mom and dad stuff, where, you know, I'm really frustrated because, like, you know, I've got my own life going on and they don't respect my life. They don't respect the battles that I have going on. And we all have battles. But then I realized, I'm like, wait a minute, they have their own battles that they are facing. So the best thing I can do for them is to respect their battles. That's the only way that they, they even have a chance of respecting what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. So will they respect my battle? You know, maybe not ever, but I do know that by respecting other people's internal things, like that is going to, that that is an opportunity for the relationship to change a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, when you're dealing with a narcissist, just constantly telling them that they're narcissistic, yeah. that's not respecting their battle. <laughs> and shaking them is not respecting their battle. And that's going to drive a wedge further between uh, sure. the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, no one likes to be called ugly and also no one likes to be called a narcissist <laughs> which by the way is the worst kind of ugly in many ways and i'm saying that uh, as someone we, we all deal with ego to, to some extent mm -hmm. and i am ugliest when i am m my most self-involved right and and self-focused and and not worrying about my community or contributing beyond myself or other beings if i'm just worried about this being often at the cost of other beings, yeah. then then uh, that's also a recipe for misery long-term. Uh, unquestioningly, it feels good temporarily. Right. But the reality is the cumulative effect of that is a life of meaninglessness, purposelessness, and, and narcissism. I mean, and that's the beauty of sort of coming full circle and seeing that it's not just other humans who suffer. So, so we have our own suffering and then we, we see that then eventually if our hearts open outward, we see that another human being suffers. Oh, I lost my child. You lost your mother. Mm -hmm. How hard for you. I'm a mother without her child. You're a child without his mother. Mm -hmm. How awful for you. Right. And then I can see a person on the street who doesn't have a home and who might be hungry and say, can I buy you lunch? Right. right? And, and hear his or her story. And then my heart softens to that person. But then, but then let's go beyond that because that's the ultimate, you know, when you can reach beyond what's just right there. Mm -hmm. And what's beyond that is how did that milk get on the shelf? Mm -hmm. What baby had to be taken from her mother mm -hmm. who also wants and loves her baby no less than I want and love my baby. Mm. Right. And then you go beyond that and you go, how did that bacon get on the plate? And how did and how what are we doing to the earth and to the future generations mm. in terms of sustainability? And that's fierce compassion. You know, when when it just ha the tentacles don't end. Mm. What do we do when that becomes crippling in a way? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, there in there's a, a god of compassion. Her name is Avilokiteshvara, and Avilokiteshvara holds all the world's sorrows in her heart. Uh -huh. And the reality is, when we can stay with our own pain, there's this capaciousness that comes with it, 
And when we have that capaciousness, then it's not like I never get discouraged or cry, but I cry and then I say, okay, do what you can do right now. What mm. can you do right now? Yeah, tend, how can you live? Your yeah. Garden. How can you live yeah. your life right now in this moment in such a way? And that means um, getting that dog off the street who's wandering. Mm. I will stop my car and I will get that dog and I will put that dog in my car. I have right. met, rescued many animals. Um, if it means feeding a hungry person, then I feed a hungry person. If it Without means, worrying about the the because it become it becomes overwhelming when you think well, you that can't. there are ninety thousand homeless people in L.A. County. You can't. And. Yeah. I, and it, if the if the solution is either feed all of them or, or feed no one, then yeah. no one gets fed. <laughs> exactly. However, yeah. if everyone does what's within their circle of capacity to do, yeah. then a whole lot more better things happen in the world. Right. Yeah. Right. That's that's where I have to go. Like when I look at all the world's troubles, whether it's politically or whether it's you know in other countries and less fortunate people, it's like I have to I have to remind myself that I have control over. And very little control it is, <laughs> but I do have control over where I place myself in a moment. I have control over how I react. And I think, you know, going back to that when it's appropriate to be self-focused, once you do have enough self-care, once you do have enough self-love, once you feel like you have enough, I mean, really, that's why Josh and I do this. We just want people to understand that, yes, you do need enough. And once you have enough, that's when you can turn your heart outward and start to affect people around you or your community around you. And sometimes we don't need as much as we uh, are, you know, initially think that we need. But ultimately what I'm getting at is, is like we do have that control over how we react towards these individual yeah. situations. And that's, yeah. that's the only little bit of maybe control that we have. Yeah. Well, and the enough is in here. Yes. We start with the enough that's in here, the intangible enough that matters more than all this shit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're a culture of acquisition. Yeah. And that acquisition well, will never be enough. It's if never this enough. Isn't enough. It's never enough yeah. if the, if you haven't done your own work. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are, there are um, certainly exceptions to anything that any rule, anything we say. But you know what I've realized, like when I was drowning in debt, when I was uh, you know getting laid off from my job, I had this realization of like, if I'm not happy with what I have now, it's having zero debt isn't going to just all of a sudden make me have a good life. Having another job, like I have to be happy with, yeah, with, with what's inside and then you can kind of move forward. All right, let's, uh, we're going to make this go three hours. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of question for us. How do you truly forgive and forget the experience of betrayal from marital infidelity? Mm. So we're talking about a few things here. We're talking about marital infidelity. Yeah. We're talking about forgiving yeah. and we're talking about forgetting. And I don't know that all of those things are going to be possible or should you want to even forget necessarily, but you can forgive. Yeah. And, and let me, what, where does forgiveness play its role within the process of, of, of grieving, of, of trauma and bereavement? Where, where is forgiveness in this recipe? Well, I don't, I don't ever bring up forgiveness to people mm. ever because it's not, it's assumptive and it's like psychological imperialism. Okay. You know? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I do have people who bring it up themselves and then we explore it together. So I work with a client whose 18 year old daughter was uh, brutally raped and murdered wow. and, um, and such bad things happened to her that they couldn't have a funeral mm. because uh, there wasn't a body. Mm. I am, I have no right at all to say that F word. 
Right. Yeah. Right. So context contextualizing it matters. Sure. Um, I think if someone wants to work toward forgiveness, then I say, let's talk about what that means to you. Mm. What does it mean to forgive? And sometimes people think, well, I have to forgive or else fill in the blank. And mm. I say, well, is that true? Mm. I mean, is that true? Is that your version of truth or is it because everyone else has told you that? Because we do in our culture say, you have to forgive, you can't hold on to anger, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Anger's an emotion. Mm. Just let it be. And sometimes it's righteous. <clears throat> I have no right to tell anyone that they should forgive or not. Yeah. What I do is give people the space to feel safe enough to explore what that means to them. Now it sounds like Lana is is asking about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So she she's saying, you know, I want to forgive. Mm -hmm. uh, she says her partner uh, here um, who committed. You know, who cheated on her, basically, mm -hmm. and she's she's looking to forgive she at this point. Forgive, yeah. yeah, and so so if if she's in that space where she wants to forgive, but maybe she doesn't feel like she has the tools to do so, or she's been unable to do so, is there a way to maybe point her in the right direction? Well, I think in that case, probably a good marriage counselor would be the yeah. best bet because that it is hard to forgive a betrayal. Right. right. The, just by the nature of it being a betrayal, uh -huh. because what you, you know, you had mentioned earlier, our brains want a shortcut, cognitive shortcut. Right. Yeah. We learn that way. It's in the ancestral environment. The those who didn't learn the cognitive shortcut were slower, <laughs> you know, and died, died quicker. Their DNA didn't make it to the next generation. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. We have to have cognitive shortcuts. OK. So having a cognitive shortcut would be, oh, he's late or she's late. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? It's the fear, right? Right, and working through the fear on your own is pretty difficult. Yeah, right. right. And that's where a third party can be quite useful. A really good marriage counselor could be quite useful. They set out a roadmap for you, uh, in in some respects. And yeah, we're talking about betrayal here, and we're we're talking about that because Lana gave. You know, she had a sense of of, of loyalty there, and. Uh, that's the only way that she had been betrayed. If this was a random person that slept with another person you didn't know, then all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't care about that. That doesn't mean anything to me. But you had a pact with someone. They broke that mm -hmm. pact. And and therefore you feel like the the, the loyalty has been, been tainted in a way. It's a moral yeah. injury. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's like, how do you get that? Yeah. How do you get that trust back? Speaking of forgiveness, um, made me think about how my stepfather used to beat the snot out of me and growing up uh how angry and i still am a little angry at him and intellectually i can forgive him but like emotionally it's hard for me to get there mm. and i guess the only way that i somewhat emotionally get to the forgiveness is having compassion for like oh he is he was transferring to me all of his anger and the way he was raised. And I can go into like his crazy childhood mm -hmm. and having compassion for like it, just his situation, I guess. Again, it doesn't help me totally get there, but um, I guess another way to forgive is trying to, if, if you're trying to forgive, it's, it's trying to find a little bit of compassion for the person who you're trying to forgive. That can help you inch a little closer. Yeah, you're talking about contextualizing, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, cont contextualizing matters. It, it, you know, that's the problem with our psychiatric and psychological systems today is that we have the, the Diagnostic Statist Statistical Manual, the DSM, mm -hmm. and part of what they laud as, as, as 
you know, being a scientific document, which it really isn't, is um, is that um, is that it doesn't consider context, and that is considered a strength. And I think that's just nuts. I mean, if you yeah. don't, if you don't think context is important, try wearing a bikini to a business meeting. Right. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Uh, but it's eighty degrees out. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it, context matters, and so what you're doing is saying, look, I under, I'm not excusing it, but mm-hmm. I. I'm explaining it. I understand how it could happen. Yes. Um, and, and the reality is that, you know, we don't have to have forgiveness necessarily mm-hmm. to continue a relationship with someone. Like love and holding someone accountable can coexist. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, it, that's it, a great point. In fact, the, the people you love most are often your accountability partners, mm-hmm. even, even if there isn't that sort of betrayal thing. But Ryan and I help keep each other accountable with respect to you know, business affairs, but also friendship. And so accountability is a good thing. And having the right people, the right support structure, the right community in your mm-hmm. life helps keep you accountable in a way that you may not be able to keep yourself accountable. Probably won't be able to keep yourself accountable. I only made the mistake once of wearing a bikini to a business meeting with Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it looks sexy on you. Was it a speedo? <laughs> yeah. Eliza uh, has a question for us, Ryan. How to keep up with good habits when you are depressed? So how do you keep up with good habits when you're depressed? That's this, a difficult one, right? Yeah. Because uh, you know, depression, it depends what we mean by, by depression, obviously, right? Do we mean you know, brain inflammation that is causing you know, some sort of... Um, uh, neurochemical response, or do we, when we say depression, do we do we simply mean, you know, sadness or feeling like I'm in a funk or uh, I stubbed my toe and now I'm feeling depressed? So we, mm-hmm. we we use this term depressed very loosely when there is this this spectrum of of emotion. But let's assume that Liza here means clinically depressed. You know, the, Capital the, D depression. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 in fact, what I what I would say is that quite often our habits are what help us out of the, the depression or a routine can help us out of the depression. But I'd love to hear your perspective. Oh, that's so tricky. Mm. <laughs> of course, if I was sitting with Liza, right? Mm-hmm. If she was here and it was her and I alone and I had the space and permission, I'd say, tell me about your life, Liza. Mm-hmm. Because there's probably something there. Mm. I mean, there's usually something there. Yeah. Um, and so um, I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't try to understand what brought her to this particular moment in time, feeling this particular way. Right. Um, habits or no habits, you know. I mean, it, you know, it can be if you've had a lot of loss, a lot of trauma, a lot of deprivation as a child. It can be hard to take care of yourself or get into self-care habits mm. or to move away from self-harming habits right. um, because that script is set. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if there are any therapists listening to this, you know, the superficial sort of, well, let's just deal with what's happening now because the past is in the past is, I think, short-sighted. And I think we're, mis- we're, not- we're underserving people. Mm-hmm. I think the way that we serve people is by helping them go deeply into what, where it started, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I meet people all the time, you know, who come to the care farm to do work on grief that happened when they were six years old, because that's when their father shot himself. Mm-hmm. And now they're 40. And it's affected his whole life. Without even realizing it sometimes, Without right? even realizing it. And, and, and other people blaming, you know, him for these maladaptive behaviors that were coping mechanisms when you're six and your dad shoots himself and the whole family is spun out 
right? And they just become part of your habitual patterns, yes, right? And so I would, I would really have to take her deeper into that and say, yeah. let's talk about this, right? Yeah. Because it's hard to self-motivate when, when you're being weighed down by the unexplored past. Yeah, the, the, the word that stands out to me here is habits, and I, I like to delineate habits from routine. And of course, she also says good habits here, which is important to, to recognize because just because something is a habit doesn't make it a, a, a good thing. In fact, most of our habits tend to be bad habits when when they aren't uh, intentional, right? When we haven't, right, right. When we haven't been deliberate about yeah. uh, about bringing these new habits on. So, uh, I, I think if I were to rephrase her question, maybe the, the thing that I would say is, how do I keep up with a good routine? Because if it is truly habitual, then it is just a habit you will continue to do it but when you know, trauma strikes or depression strikes something like that it may throw your routine off significantly and the thing that has helped me in the past when when dealing with with depression or dealing with trauma is uh having those habits to actually to, to fall back on and and when they are truly habitual you know whether it's exercise or reading or writing i tend to do them even you know on on the bad days, so to speak, and, and uh, I, I know that they actually the good habits help me cope, whereas the bad habits they're they're the path of least resistance, but they don't help me cope at all. Yeah, yeah. I think the only thing I you know that I could add to this is you know maybe she has had some good habits that are now she, she's not uh, doing. Um, don't introduce any more bad habits. Don't introduce any bad habits. Just because you're not keeping up with your good habits, yeah, don't don't start to introduce bad habits. Uh, Diane's got a question. How do I come to grips with parting with my late husband's things? He's been gone 11 years ago now, but every time I try to go through his stuff, I'm an emotional wreck. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't does she need to get rid of his things? I mean, again, it's like what are you making what are you making space for? Why Yeah. Why why would she cuz just getting rid of those things isn't going to make her feel better about her late husband. Um, she may be feeling some social pressure from others. It's hard yeah, to know. Right. Her name was Diane? Yes. Yeah. Um so I I help people do this uh who are my clients when they want to go through not to get rid of, but to go through their beloved's things. Um, I worked recently with a beautiful, bereaved family. Uh, their only child died very, very suddenly, uh, mm. uh, deep vein thrombosis. She mm. was only 18. Mm. Beautiful girl. And um, mom, understandably, was having a hard time going in her room and just couldn't, right, right, couldn't go there because it was too emotional. And so it's, again, that goes back to that habituation, but you have to feel safe. Mm. And because she feels safe with me, we could do it together, right? Mm. And we go through photo albums and we revisit over and over and over and over and over again until she gets to the place where, and this did happen, where she was looking at videos and photos herself because she she started to trust that she could do it. Mm. So, um, you know, you, you, I can't underestimate the value of a really good, really 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 good therapist or counselor mm -hmm. or a or a dog i mean really because i you know when people i work with yeah. say that that, that uh, animals have been more of a support than most humans they yeah. often help you get outside of yourself in a way you know I, i've heard that people dealing with depression in particular um 
where it's it, the depression becomes so involuted and, and uh, but having the dog in particular they 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 have this thing to care with but also bond with and it takes them outside of themselves yeah. and it sounds to me like what you're also saying here for diane is what's going to make you feel safe when you are dealing with this stuff and if you're asking this question because there is social pressure then yes i would say that don't feel social pressure to get rid of his stuff but if you're asking this question because you're like okay i'm now feeling like this stuff is a burden to me yeah th then yes it would make sense to find a way to work with a with a, a therapist or an expert uh, to to be able to deal with this stuff because you want to be able to get rid of the burden, not get rid of the memories of mm -hmm. your husband, but get rid of the things that you now feel like are in the way. Yeah. Th those, sometimes when I'm working with people, what they do is they start going through the things and because and, they're moving or something. And so it's, you know, what are the things that mean the most to you out of these things, right? And so mm -hmm. it's about intentionally selecting special pieces that mean the most mm -hmm. and then the, the rest when they're ready to let go or sometimes donate because, mm -hmm. you know, I had a family who's, you know, baby died and they wanted to keep some of their son's things, but then the, uh, they wanted to help someone else who was less fortunate mm -hmm. who had, you know, young children. And so they donated that to someone who was less, for the other things to someone less fortunate. Yeah. So. And it becomes perspectival too, because I know with, you know, my mom's stuff, when I was letting go of, of most of her things, I kept a handful of sentimental items. And for me, I got far more value from the few items I kept than if I were to water them down with a thousand trinkets. Mm -hmm. And and that's what was appropriate for me. And and I can pass that story on and say, hey, if that recipe works for you, great. Tweeze out some ingredients, apply it to your own life, but also realize that my recipe is not a prescription yeah. for the way that you need to also, uh, uh, you need to address your loved one's things. Yeah, so yeah, Diane, I think needs to make sure if she's letting go of something, she's doing it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. and and when she's ready to let go of those things, yeah, find some support yeah. where, wherever it may be. Mm -hmm. We got a question from Jewel here. What are the benefits of forgiveness? So going back to forgiveness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so the forgiveness thing, you know, if there are benefits, like you said, you're not bring you you don't bring it up with people and say, all right, you've been wronged, you must forgive and move on. But this person here, uh, Jewel, she's saying, all right, I want to forgive someone. What are what would be the benefits of that? And it sounds to me like there are benefits if you were, uh, to me, forgiveness, uh, part, part of forgiveness is, is uh, an acceptance. It's a letting go of, of certain emotions that you maybe had tethered to, to an experience or, or to a person. Uh, but it's also permission in, in many ways to, to maybe move on or not even move on, move forward. Mm. Yeah, I think con context matters here, right? Yeah. So are we talking about forgiveness for something that my brother did when I was 13? You know, he embarrassed me in front of whatever, fill in the blank, right? Mm -hmm. Or are we talking about forgiveness because someone murdered my child? Very mm -hmm. different things. Yeah. So if someone wants to forgive, I mean, there's some literature out there about the benefits of forgiveness if someone wants to forgive. And there are people who forgive for extraordinary things, extraordinary, egregiously awful, violent things acts against people they love mm. you've heard the stories uh you know yeah. where you know uh, a person you know connects with the murderer of a person they love mm -hmm. in prison and they have a relationship uh that i don't know if that could be me that's not been my experience but that's extraordinary to me so does that person yield benefit from that probably but maybe not any more 
benefit than the person yields saying, I am choosing not to forgive, mm. right? And so I think individually, some people who have a propensity toward really wanting to forgive might get some spiritual benefit from that. A lot of people mm. I meet who really, forgiveness is very important to them. They have a very strong faith system. Mm. And in their faith system, forgiveness is important. Yeah, it's a belief that is that is uh, sort of a core tenet of, yes, of what they yes, believe. Yes, yeah. and it aligns with their view of the world and their value of the world. Well, going back to like my stepfather, the again, haven't totally got to forgiveness, but I would rather feel compassion than anger. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's one advantage to forgiveness is instead of having that negative angry emotion, you can move from that maybe closer towards compassion. Can I invite you to consider something else? Yes, please do. Can you create enough capaciousness that you can feel both anger and compassion? Mm. Is that, I, I, I guess uh, my knee-jerk reaction is that sounds unhealthy, but explain why that is healthy. Well, I'm gonna take my horse, Chamaco, who was being beaten and starved nearly to death. Mm. <clears throat> I am incredibly angry with the person who did this to him. Mm. And so, I, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I was vicariously traumatized. I've never, I was out of my body. I've never seen anybody hitting, beating a bleeding horse. Mm. And then when the packs came off, I mean, his body was, you could barely look at him without feeling like you're gonna throw up. But I've never seen anything like it. So I was really angry, but mm. I, and I also felt compassion because I considered the context. So this is a person who was adversely affected by intergenerational trauma. Yes. And so he had, the same things done to him in his history. Yeah. And so I can feel both compassion mm. and anger mm. at the same time. And I do because it's, it's more real. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I do see that. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And the, That's right. well, I guess maybe it comes down to how is the compassion serving you and how is the anger serving mm. you? Because the anger could lead towards compassion, really. I mean, in a way. I mean, I think they can inform each other, certainly, yeah, right? Yeah. So the anger helps to fuel my passion for helping abused animals, mm. right? And mm-hmm. also adults who are unconsciously being re-injured by their own trauma that's unprocessed. Mm. Look what you're doing yeah, because you're afraid to be with your own pain. Mm. Look at what you're doing to others, right? Right, yes. and so that anger can be a force. Mm-hmm. While I'm still feeling compassion for them, does it make sense? It does. Yeah. So maybe. Um, okay. So what about this? What if I feel the anger? Uh, it, it's probably not healthy to project that anger, though, right? Well, I mean, so what you're talking about there is a behavior. Yes. Right. So the emotion is fine. Okay. So if I'm if I get angry at you and I punch you, that's not okay. Right. But I can be angry at you and say, "Gosh, you know, I'm I'm really just disappointed. This is this really hurt my feeling." Usually, by the way, underneath all anger is hurt. You're right. Oh, right. Yeah. Anger is a very surface. Right. Emotion. Right. It's very yeah. superficial. Right. Yeah. So so I can say, "Gosh, I'm really really angry and I'm hurt and this is why." Or I can punch you. Yeah. You know, a behavior. Oh, that's so superficial, though. I mean. That's why I get I real I rail against the whole behavioral health thing, because <laughs> why are we talking about behavioral health? The reason a three year old bites his friend at school is because he's frustrated. Let's talk about emotional health, shall yeah, we? Yeah. Because underneath the behavior is an emotion. Right. Yeah. So it's okay. You can feel anger. Yeah. But you can project compassion. You don't necessarily have to project that anger. Sure. Per se. Or behave in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> uh, we got a question here from Maya. 
how do we move on from guilt? It mm. takes up so much space in life. Mm. I have so much guilt. Like I cannot even, I mean, let me just start with the past partners that I've cheated on and how much guilt that I have from that. So for me, I could be trapped in feeling this sorrow for myself and sorry for my actions. But I think what that, what I'm able to do with that guilt is it informs my behavior now. Mm -hmm. And so for me, treating my wife with as much respect and, and building as much trust as I can and letting that past behavior inform my present behavior, like that is how I've been able to personally let go of that guilt. And the other thing too is to understand that like none of us are perfect. I have this whole theory that we're all shitheads. It's just what level of a shithead are you? <laughs> and I try to be as little of a shithead as possible. <laughs> and uh, I used to be a bigger shithead. <laughs> but now um, because of those past experiences, those, that past guilt, um, it has totally helped me to just create a different behavior for myself. Do you think maybe that's disempowering though? I mean, I, I get the joke and I, I think it's a hilarious joke, mm -hmm. but um, uh, to to say that we're all shitheads, it sets, it's almost like setting us up for failure in a way. Uh, it's almost in a roundabout way. It may be excusing mm -hmm. the, the behavior mm -hmm. or, or a potential for, it's a potential excuse for future behavior. Because uh, I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you on, on a lot of this where you're saying, uh, my past behaviors were bad, and I feel a lot of guilt for that. Uh, in fact, in our new book, you know, I write a lot about some really uh, terrible things that I, I did throughout my teens and twenties. Mm -hmm. And uh, for example, my the the relationship I'm in now, my marriage is uh, like I feel great, so good. Like I wouldn't. It's the first long term relationship I've been in where I wouldn't be afraid to like let her have my phone for the day, and she has my email password, and I don't care. Like it, it doesn't. Yeah, because. Uh, the guilt that I felt before meant changing my behaviors. And I think we often need to uncouple guilt from shame. Shame says something about who we are as an individual. Guilt says something about our, our behaviors. Mm -hmm. And the reason I felt that guilt was that I, 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 I wasn't behaving in a way that aligned with the person I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. You're right. None of us are going to be perfect. And right. I don't want to be a perfect version of myself, but I do want to be a, a better version of myself. And in order to do that, um, we both have had to change our, our behaviors, especially yeah. over the last decade to be, be more mature, better versions of ourselves. For sure. Yeah. I mean, yes, the, the shithead, it, it is a joke. And right. it, it is satire. Uh, if you looked in the mirror every morning and said, I'm a shithead, <laughs> uh, I think we can all agree that that's probably not healthy. And <laughs> so it is up there with lipstick. It is contextual, but yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But, but really what, you know, that joke, yes, it is tongue in cheek, but really what that joke is saying is, is we're all imperfect. And the question is, is like, how are you going to deal with being imperfect? And how are you going to move forward to, uh, to inform your behavior, to try to to try to be uh, as close to, you know, living a meaningful life as possible. So certainly, Josh, I don't want you waking up. Every, I mean, you are a shithead, but <laughs> you don't want to wake up every morning. You knew morning. that was coming. <laughs> you gave that to him. You set me up, man. Yeah. No, but yeah, of course, you don't want to wake up every morning and say, I'm a shithead. That's, yeah, the, the context behind that is, uh, could certainly be disempowering. Right, yeah, yeah I think language is, is... Absolutely. ...is important, and precision is, is important here, and... Um, I think it's, I think it's actually you're really, my favorite shithead. By the way, I think it's really helpful to say <laughs> that um, I, that whatever I did was I, I was a shithead sort of thing because mm -hmm. it helps me realize like 
those are the behaviors I don't want to mimic. But to say I am a shithead has to do with the person I, who I am as a person. Yeah, it's borderline right. calling yourself a loser. I mean, you don't want to wake up every morning and call yourself a loser. Right. Well, I think maybe the problem I have is with the present tense versus the the past tense. Yeah. I, I actually really I find it to be empowering as a as a past tense exercise <laughs> sure. to look at all the shithead behaviors from my past. Uh, uh, but to say that I am a shithead sort of sets me up to. Um, to I don't know, misbehave in yeah. a way. Yeah. Tell us where we're wrong here. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> uh, I think all human emotion has an evolutionary uh, reason that has is is evolutionarily logical. So I think guilt has its utility, right? Why, when we feel guilty for something, it causes future change in behavior. Right. I think sociopaths don't feel guilt, mm. right? Yeah. So I, I don't I don't ever think that uh, that that uh, a, an emotion that we have is a bad emotion or a good emotion. Uh, it's an emotion, right? So remember, context matters. So I work with people who sometimes actually cause the deaths of their children. Hmm. I work with a father who ran over his four year old daughter twice. He thought she was a bike. Oh my god! And then pulled forward. Oh my god! Oh. So people went around saying, don't feel guilty, don't feel guilty, don't feel guilty. So he comes into work with me and he says, he's waiting for me to say, don't feel guilty. And I'm like, let's talk about the guilt. Mm. Because the reality is not talking about it doesn't mean it isn't there. Mm. All you're doing is shaming him now for feeling guilt. Yeah. Right. And so what I say to people is get curious about your guilt without judging it. Don't, don't hold on to it. Don't cling to it. Get curious about it. Create some space for it. Invite it in for tea and say, let's talk. What are you telling me? Mm. What do you want to tell me? How yeah. can I learn from you? And then will you be a little nicer to me if I invite you in? Will you not kick the door down? Right? Can we have an amiable friendship here? I mean, because because there's some utility to our emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the the guilt is, it's informing. It is a, it's a symptom of something that, that, is showing you yes something needs to be addressed but to just shove it away and to never address it um yeah i don't know if that's ever going to serve you in you know overall in the best way yeah i I, th- I think it would actually do the opposite of, of of serving to to say well i shouldn't be i shouldn't be guilty and, and i think sometimes we confuse that guilt with the shame and that's where it really becomes a problem where if if this man thinks that well, I am the type of person who would do this. Well, okay, you did do that, but you're not the person who would obviously do that intentionally. Okay, so so let me go deeper then. So you're talking about shame, right? Uh-huh. So here's the narrative. I'm a bad father. Mm-hmm. And I have to allow that space, as hard as it is to hear, right? Because here's his question, what kind of a father does this? Mm-hmm. And... I know, and you know, that it was an accident, a terrible accident that could have happened to anyone. But in his mind, in his heart, are you kidding? Hmm. Right? And so, and so I, so any therapist or counselor or any helping person has to create space for a person to explore that. Because if you don't explore it, then it just gets silenced and then it becomes bigger shame. Mm -hmm. Because there's nowhere to talk about it. I mean, the... The, the corresponding physical action of shame is this, right? Right. Right. What do we do when we feel ashamed? Coward. We hide. Yeah. Right. We hide. And when he can sit in my office and talk about his shame, there's something that unshames it. 
Right. Mm. Right. And also the, the I'm a bad father can potentially turn into let's talk about why I'm not a bad father. And because that is one one thing that happened. And yes, if you isolate that event, that's pretty bad. You can't get much worse of a father than that, right? But of course, when you when you pan out and, and you realize that uh, intention matters, the, you know, it's like if if my if my wife accidentally we're both cooking in the kitchen together, she accidentally you know stabs me with a knife because she turns around the wrong time. That is much different from if she were to turn around and just start stabbing me. Uh, intentions really do matter, yeah. but outcomes also matter. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, I think I think that's totally appropriate to to open up the space and say, uh, let's let's explore that. Let's explore wh- why you're feeling the shame, because maybe you're not the type of person who would do that intentionally. But here is here is the result. And maybe that makes you feel like you're a bad father. But where do we go from from that into who you are as a person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't lead that way. So I just give them space. Eventually, people come to that. You know, it's, it's, I just give them space. It's like giving them space to explore, right? Okay. So we can, we can explore these four walls. We're all sitting here. And if we were like, well, let's learn about this room, we can spend some time learning about the room. But if we give you a bigger space, then you can explore more. And if mm-hmm. you give it an even bigger space, then you can be curious about more. And so what I do is give people space to keep exploring, right? So what's over there and what's over there? And eventually, people, most people, even those who cause the deaths of those they love very, very much, eventually they come around to, um, you know, I did a very, very, very mindless thing, and it was an accident, and I will pay for that the rest of my life, mm-hmm. right? And that's the truth. And there's nothing I can say or should say to take that away from them. Yeah. You know, I'm not a, I say this all the time, I'm not an emotional colonizer. It's not my job to go in and take over someone's emotional country, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving us the space today, yes. Joanne. I really appreciate it. I want to encourage folks to check out your book. It's called Bearing the Unbearable. And where, where should we send them? Where, where's your online home? Uh, well, they can get the book on Amazon. It's usually 10 or 11 bucks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I want to acknowledge you for doing something really meaningful. Yeah. Uh, we're really grateful for thank the work you. that you do. It's we're very inspiring. Thank you. Yeah. You're, you're doing important work. Yeah. And the Care Farm is just, it sounds like a little piece of paradise. It is. It is magic. Thank you for creating Pure magic. That. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's Amen. great to meet you. You're wonderful. Yeah. It's great to Thank meet you. Thank you. Thanks right. so much. All right, Thanks. y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. We love you, patrons. Thanks for your support. Bye. The minimalists. <laughs>